Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Today, I'm so excited to have Marjorie Wolokaw, PhD, back on the show. Marjorie is an emeritus professor and prior chair of the Department of Human Physiology and member of the Institute of Neuroscience at the University of Oregon. She taught courses in neuroscience and rehabilitation, as well as complementary medicine and meditation. She is president of the Academy for the Advancement of Post-Materialist Sciences and research director for the International Association of Near-Death Studies. Marjorie has received over $7.2 million in research funding for her research in child development, rehabilitation medicine, and most recently, meditation and spiritual awakening. She has published more than 200 scientific articles and written or co-edited eight books. Her latest book, Infinite Awareness, The Awakening of a Scientific Mind, pairs her research as a neuroscientist with her self-revelations about the mind's spiritual power. Welcome back to the program, Marjorie. And was prayer a part of that? Because I, I was it Larry Dossey who brought in prayer to medical students, the importance of, can you tell us about that? Hopefully he'll be on the show, but and in fact, I mean, the, the way that we um, talk about it, um, it, we could talk about it either as energy medicine or as um, distant intentionality. Um, those are the scientific <laughs> words for prayer. Distant, what is distant it? intentionality, distant because your, your intention in your prayer is that they be healed and you're sending love and blessings and that healing um, blessing. And so um, because you're doing it from a distance when you're praying for them and it's a strong intention that they be healed, you use that neutral term that then scientists might be able to accept. So, so we, yes, we definitely talked about that. And we talked about it partly in relationship to um, a, woman, a woman named Jean Achterberg did this amazing study of these energy healers um, that were in Hawaii that were well known in their own energy healing traditions and how from a distance they would send um, in effect prayer or, uh, or intentionality in effect to a person that they were communicating with in a different part of the hospital setting that was in a shielded room. And they showed that the intentions of the healers actually changed the activity in the brain of the people that were in the shielded room. And of course, there have been other studies on prayer too that shows that when you simply have a lot of people praying for an individual, you really do see changes in that person's own physical state of being. They definitely get better in many, many instances. So yes. Power of prayer. So that brings us to the um, an interview I listened to recently that you gave at IONS, and it was comparing the experiences of people who've had near-death experiences and those who are um, 
do well or very well versed in meditation, have been meditating for a long time, like yourself, and terminally um, ill patients with cancer that had had psilocybin, who all had these transformative experiences. And not only that, there were scans done on them, well, not the ND years, but the others. And can you tell us about those studies? Because it just, it just, I was so excited when I heard that. Well, and I'll, I'll take it just a step back to, to say a little bit about what happens in our mind normally and our brain normally, and then what happens in meditation in these experiences. Because to me, that was my first real exciting discovery as well. When I read that, in fact, psychologists in the past, maybe I'd say 10 to 15 years and neuroscientists have showed that when we are simply sitting around during our day, the part of our brain that's most active is what they call the default mode network or the mind wandering network. And I think we all know about this network in our brain. It's when you're sitting there and you just see your mind going from one thought to another to another. And they call it the default mode because everybody has that network going on when Whenever we're just relaxed and doing nothing in particular. And their point was that this is actually the basis of our ego. It's our ego narrative about ourselves and how we relate to the world. And in fact, if we think about our thoughts, they're often about what I just said to so-and-so and that wasn't right and now I should change or what this person said to me. That's what we're talking about, the ego narrative. And what they noted was that when a person meditates, and this now is one of the studies, and I'll just go right to Judson Brewer's study from Yale University um, School of Medicine. He, he then took these meditators that had meditated for a number of years, and he asked them to go into his um, brain scan machine, his functional magnetic resonance imaging machine, and meditate while they were in there for a particular period of time, and looked at what changed in the activity of different modes of um, areas of the brain. And he compared them to control subjects who hadn't meditated before, and they just asked them to try to focus on their breath and quiet their mind. And when he looked at the activity in this default mode or mind wandering network, in the experienced meditators, it turned way, way down. And in the new subjects, they had trouble quieting their minds. And so it just kept on with its usual activity. So that was very interesting. And also there was a correlation between the amount that the person actually was able to quiet the default mood network and the mystical aspects to any experience they had in meditation. So then um, when we turn to another study that was somewhat similar to that, and this was by another group that were at Johns Hopkins University. And this is um, Roland Griffiths and Frederick Barrett's lab at Johns Hopkins University. And as you said, they were now interested in doing a study on terminal cancer patients that had anxiety about their terminal cancer situation and anxiety about death. And they asked whether if you gave one of those persons a dose of psilocybin, which is this neuromodulatory drug that you find in mushrooms, if that might also have an effect on their fear and then their anxiety about an impending death. So they did a study with many people um, that were terminal cancer patients and also control subjects. And what they found was that just like in the meditation study, these people First of all, their default mode network turned way down, their mind wandering network turned way down during the psilocybin experience. And also they had mystical experiences at the same time as that narrative mode of the brain, which I call the basic filtering mode of your brain that's filtering out higher awareness is now turned off. And I had 
this wonderful quote from one person that I think I mentioned to you before, this particular man said, it felt more real than any reality I'd ever experienced. He said, time and space didn't exist there. He said, there was only this feeling of like unconditional and undying love. And what they once again found is that there was a direct correlation between the amount that the default mode or mind-wandering network was turned down and the level of the mystical or unitive experience that the person had. But to me, the most important part is that one dose of psilocybin would often change this person's fear of death forever. It's like something happened and they now had a new sense of reality that death was not what they thought it was and they were connected with the entire universe. And now they were in a state of peace of mind. And then of course, the last one is, this is exactly what happens in near-death experiences. And we have so many stories from people that had near-death experiences. And again, Bruce Grayson that we've talked about at the University of Virginia has done so much study on the fact that again, their default mode network is turned off because their whole brain is flatlined because they've had cardiac arrest very often. And once again, they have these mystical experiences where they leave their body, they watch their body um, down below them as people are trying to resuscitate them in the um, re um, resuscitation room. And they often then go to another part of some other realm, they say, and they have this experience of union with their relatives. They feel, ah, consciousness is primary. They're told to come back to their body. And when they come back, their life has changed. They no longer fear death. And now they often change their careers to go into a different career. I think Bruce Grayson was saying in his book after that sometimes people that were policemen that found that a very rewarding career when they were younger had a near-death experience. And they said, I can't deal with that anymore. I have to move into a more caring situation like perhaps emergency medical help or something like that. So you see, these are absolutely transformative. And now we know the parts of the brain that are actually causing us to have what I would call a filter that filters out these higher types of awareness. And that's the default mode network. And I wanna add one more thing. There's something that um, is also called the thalamocortical loop, which is basically this loop between the memories of our cortex and our judgments of our cortex and our midbrain that is always active during our day because it's part of the default mode network. And it keeps new sensory information and insights from actually entering our brain because it is really telling us everything that's happening that is relevant to our ego narrative, but not to this higher understanding. So when you turn down that thalamocortical loop and the default mode network, now you can be present in the moment and you can hear the relevant sensory information coming in. You can really listen to people talking to you and you can listen to the universe and insights coming from perhaps a broader or a higher awareness. That's what's so powerful. Wow. And yes, the transformation is what is so amazing, what happens after all of these experiences, because people are, they're, they're transformed forever. And, and as Marjorie referred to, Bruce Grayson just came out with his first, well, not his first book, <laughs> but a new book called, um, named After, and it is many accounts and implications of these near-death experiences. And it is, I suggest you run out and get that book, along with Marjorie's book, of course, <laughs> which we'll talk about a little bit more um, in a bit. So what do you feel, I wanna kind of put this together with, 
you know, one of my favorite topics, which is children and children and creativity and the importance of encouraging to, as you put it, um, shifting out of the paradigm or shifting out of the relevant and going into the irrelevance and the importance of that and how creativity plays a role and the implications of these studies that you just talked about, what they can tell us to help us help our, help our children, help humanity. Yeah. So, and, and maybe I'll first even start with just us as adults and the fact that we have been somehow trained in our culture. And I think it may also just be a natural part of who we are um, with our egoic network always being sort of very loudly talking in the background um, to um, basically not be able to listen carefully to new experiences, new sensory sensations, new insights, et cetera, around us. And one of the things that um, a very well-known scientist named Thomas Kuhn talked about was that in the scientific paradigm that I'll talk about first, what seems to happen is once you have a shift in science, for example, to a new theory, a new way of looking at the world, a new worldview, um, everybody gets excited about that. And we all start doing research to show us how that new worldview is actually instantiated, could be quantum physics or something like that. But then what begins to happen is that that new worldview becomes the norm. And after a few years, all we start doing is filling in the blanks in that particular theory, but we stay within that theory and we're afraid to move out of it because that is the scientific norm and that's what's considered credible. And what he shows happens is that after a certain number of years, then any scientist that tries to move into a new area is actually discouraged. And if you do try to do research in a new area that's not part of that theoretical framework, you are considered to be basically doing um, non-credible work and you often can be ostracized or not given tenure. An example of that right now is within our scientific worldview, our scientific um, materialist paradigm, people who do research on things like meditation or near-death experiences, which are saying consciousness might be actually more than just the product of the activity of neurons in our brain, that consciousness might be fundamental, are really discouraged from doing that research. And they are told basically, you need to do something that's within our normal scientific materialist worldview. And in fact, once again, Bruce Grayson in that book after said that he was told that at the University of Michigan when he started doing research on near-death experiences. And they said, either you change your research or you're not gonna get tenure. And he moved to a different university that was much more sympathetic. So it's, it's happening all over the world. And we just have to understand that not everywhere, there are a few places where it doesn't happen. Bruce Grayson did find another university. And my university, after I received full professorship was willing to let me do that research on the side. Um, but what happens is that it discourages our creativity, getting back now to our children. And so what I think we're saying is that if we truly want to expand our children's ability to be creative, we have to, first of all, help them realize that it's okay to not be relevant to the current scientific or worldview that is out there. And it's okay for them to experiment in other places. And I will even go a little further. When a person's child says to them, mama, last night I saw my granddad come back from the dead and visit me. Um, we shouldn't say that couldn't happen. We should listen to them with like open ears and say, wow, that's amazing. And we then allow them to listen with 
uh, what we could say, like a more open ear to these in bits of information that may be coming in from the cosmos, from dead relatives, from uh, something else, so that they don't shut that off because their parents tell them this couldn't be happening. I hear so many people that said when they were kids, that's what happened with their parents. And they learned either to just shut it out completely because it couldn't be real or to simply not tell their parents and other people about it. So I think that's the key thing. And just one other thing is thinking about Again, a great author that I loved who's no longer living, but Joseph Chilton Pierce in his book, The Magical Child, talked about how often children sit in what he called sort of open-eyed staring for certain periods of the day where they're just inside being still. And that's turning off the default mode network of the brain. And he said, we should encourage that instead of trying to keep them active in every waking moment, learning one thing or another of factual information. Mm -hmm. So to me, I think that's the key. It's like teaching children in some way, um, meditative processes, maybe um, just telling them to meditate, focus on their breath is not the way with a child to do it, but we can teach them to be present, to really be in the present moment and be aware of exactly what's happening right now so that they can actually train their mind to be one pointed, but also at the same time, still and receptive to everything that's happening around them. Right. I, I remember interviewing Karen Newell and she was talking about how, and, and you mentioned it somewhere also, but how beautiful it would be if at the beginning of a school day or whatever, um, whatever activity it is or wherever they are, to have the children actually sit quietly and or stand and meditate and be present in, in gratitude. And another one I interviewed, Bruce Alderman had done a lot of work um, in indigenous cultures. And you see this all the time where they actually had a center at the school and that was the quiet place. And kids would go in there for even almost an hour and just be, well, depending on the age, of course, but being quiet and being present. So if, if children were, what do you feel how it would help a child as they get older, if we're talking about, you know, very young, five or six, if they, first of all, if we encourage and believe and, and you know, trust the, not trust, but listen to them more carefully and engage them and be out in nature more and you use that creative creativity. How do you think it would help them as they grow older and enter this, you know, crazy Western civilization world? I think that you mentioned a key issue, and I think that is being out in nature more. As yes. well. I realized that one of the problems right now with our society is that we aren't treating our planet well. And we and basically with our global warming and other crises, um, we, it's as if we have lost our connection with the sacredness of the plants and the trees and the animals around us. And we have gotten so much into our intellect and technology that we have lost that connection. And I think that if with our young children and ourselves, we can spend more time connecting with nature in all those wonderful aspects that we will suddenly at the heart level, understand our connection and the sacredness of nature. And I think it will inform our decisions. We will say, well, maybe I don't need to um, do this particular thing that is harming the environment because it happens to be pleasurable to me. And I might want to actually have a, a life that's maybe a little bit simpler 
so that I can actually help the environment be flourishing in all the ways that it might do. So I think it's it's making ourselves a little bit less human centric and including the environment as part of our true, like sacred um, yeah, a- atmosphere that we live in. Right. And in terms of when a loved one passes and I actually wrote my, just wrote my first children's book about this. And, you know, so many adults, hence so many children just live in so much fear when, when something happens like that. And it's, it's so difficult. Um, But if we, if we could help children, once again, be quiet and create rituals and talk to them, talk to them about signs and synchronicities and, looking at the clouds and, and remembering and visualization. How do you think that would help them just, oh, of course, one still must grieve, but to live a little bit more or a little bit less in fear and live more in love, knowing that that love is eternal. I mean, you raise a very interesting point. And I want to say that when I grew up, one of the things my parents did, because it was the culture of our time, my grandparents died when I was maybe, again, around 11 or 12, maybe 15. My parents shielded me from my grandparents' death. And they didn't even have me go to like a memorial service. And that was their way of trying to help me. But in fact, it didn't. It helped. It made me feel isolated from death. And Instead, when my parents died, my sister and I were right there with them every moment during the last, you know, weeks and months of their deaths. And somehow being with them, sharing our love um, made such a difference with um, our relationship. And in fact, we had a closer relationship in those last weeks than we'd had during our entire lives because they were so vulnerable and we were with them. So I wish our society could understand that death is not something to be pushed away because we're afraid of it, but it's there to be embraced and and be with our parents and our loved ones. And then when they cross over too, it's like the veil isn't quite so um, thick. It's thinner than once we've been with them during that process, we can also perhaps then engage with them on the other side. I think that would be so helpful for children to realize this is normal. We're all going to die. Let's embrace this process and consider it sacred rather than something to be afraid of. Yes. And the, and the person, the loved one, it's not, they're not lost to them, to them. And listen, young children know this already. Mm-hmm. They see people who have passed and, and all come, we, they talk about choosing parents and past lives. I know you talk a little bit about Ian Stevenson and in your book and, and yes, it's just so much, it's so important to, to help them because I really believe that it does help them develop an inner strength, which we, which we all could use in this. In this and a conviction in trusting their own experiences, I think is yes. so important, yeah. Yes, yes. So um, I'd like to just talk briefly about, uh, in your book, you uh, mentioned awareness and healing. And... Can you just talk a little bit about in the energy healing that you've studied? I know one one student had a really bad um, skin skin issue. We talked a little bit about that in our pre-conversation, but could you just um, talk a little bit about that? Once again, it's kind of shifting one's attitude and how they how they help to heal others or heal heal, heal themselves. 
Well, and I think it's it's part of this very interesting broader thing of when we talk about what I would call the mind-body relationship, and we call, often call it mind-body medicine, we're talking about a number of things. One is the simple placebo effect, which of course doctors say is not real, that it's just a suggestion. But in fact, all of the research shows that the placebo effect is very real, that literally my mind and my ideas can affect the physiology of all of my body. And so there's been a number of studies on that. And in fact, I think the most important part is in addition to my mind affecting my body, a doctor's belief system about what's happening to me can also affect my body. So the placebo effect works um, mind down within me and also from the doctor um, to my own physiology too. And there have been a number of studies about that. So those are just two things to remember. And then the study that you're referring to is related to the hypno hypnosis, which is in a certain sense, a little bit like the placebo effect in that the doctor now, the psychologist is making a suggestion to the person's mind that a particular illness is going to be healed. It's going to go away. It's going to go into remission and everything will be fine. And what we find is that for hypnosis, it works very, very well in about 15% of the population, which for some reason have a much more open mind than some of the other people in the population. And so in this one case, a young, um, I think it was an adolescent boy, had a disease called ichthyosis for all of his life. It, this is a genetic disease. It is inherited. And what it does is it puts what look like scales all over the skin of the body. And that's why it's called ichthyosis. It almost looks like skin scales. And there is bleeding between this like horny substance on the surface of the skin. And it's embarrassing for the child. It's painful. It's all of these things. And this particular child had been through to surgeons where they grafted new skin from his belly, which didn't have so much on his arms, it didn't help. And finally they gave up and said, we can't do anything. And so his parents took him to this psychiatrist and the psychiatrist tried hypnosis on him. And he decided to do a careful study with this child because he was a scientist as well as a psychiatrist. And so he actually did a hypnosis um, saying, you are going to have like one arm be healed of the ichthyosis now. And in fact, the next week when he came in, the scales were beginning to fall away and like red new skin was beginning to show underneath and they did it to the other arm and then the legs, et cetera. And it's not that the entire ichthyosis went away from the whole body, but the vast majority of it disappeared. And of course the boy was ecstatic. And as far as I know, I think they said, as long as the doctor stayed in touch, it never came back. Now that's not to say that it works in every case because this is again, the boy's mind being able to take that suggestion and do something with it to change the body. Right. It, again, it just shows the power. If we could only learn how to tap into that power of the mind in changing our physiology. And of course, then when we talk about prayer, for example, and energy healing, there we're dealing with a particular person that is either the doctor or a um, good friend that is praying for you or an energy healer, basically sending those good intentions to you. And like we talked about with Gene Achterberg's study, that can actually then literally change your brain and change your physiology. And often it's the case that this, in some of the studies, the people didn't know they were being prayed for and, or energy healing was being given to them and still it had an effect. So I, I think that Larry Dossie in his book, One Mind talks about this as the telecebo effect versus the placebo effect. So Placebo effect is when I can change my own physiology through my thinking. Telecebo is when my doctor or my energy healer or my um, acupuncturist, whatever, through their own understanding and intention 
or my hypnotherapist, it might be placebo and telecebo can affect those. So it, it shows us the power of what I would call non-local communication um, between human beings to actually help us um, better our world and heal and make stronger connections between us. Right. Wow. So that's really the neuroplasticity that people talk about that you can actually change the brain. You can change the brain. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So um, we need to wrap it up, but I have two more questions. Um, First of all, well, first of all, I'd like you just to talk briefly about your beautiful book, Infinite Awareness. And it's so much about what we're talking about today, but what would you like to share with our listeners about your book? Well, I think I'd like to say that, again, the full title is Infinite Awareness, The Awakening of a Scientific Mind. And so what it's really about is coming from a materialist worldview, which was what I learned in graduate school. And I was totally like embedded in that worldview. And I thought any of my relatives talking about God or whatever were definitely probably weak-minded. to having a spiritual awakening in that meditation retreat, and then beginning to become curious and opening up to looking at the world in a different way. And then saying, well, maybe I can actually like not only look at the research on perhaps a wider understanding of consciousness and um, awareness, but also how it can make us more interconnected as human beings and actually improve the whole state of our planet. And I had a wonderful time writing that book, literally going in and looking at the research on things like near-death experiences or after-death communication, or for example, um, um, cases suggestive of reincarnation. And I should say that when I first looked at cases suggestive of reincarnation, I said, this is impossible. I mean, from my scientific worldview, my materialist worldview. And then I started reading the studies and I'm going, oh my goodness. And I would like pull on my husband's um, like um, shoulder, you know, at a particular point in the evening to say, you've got to hear this. You've got to hear it. It's so good. So I think that that's what they would find in my book is they could walk with me through that process of um, the curiosity that helped me then expand my worldview more and more and more till now I really have a very different understanding of the world which is not only more expansive, but also there's a sense of joy in my interconnection with others and with the whole world around me. Right, right. Do you think people or did people notice a change in you after that first meditation experience? I think they did. I mean, I have to laugh that occasionally in our department meetings and at the University of Oregon in my department, which could occasionally be somewhat argumentative, um, people would say, oh, Marjorie over there would just be sitting quietly. And you could feel like maybe she was like meditating with her eyes open. (laughs) And I had to admit, I use some of those techniques to keep myself calm. Well, that's a big thing about that. You know, that's a huge reason to do meditation um, is because it does stay with that with you throughout the day it really helps to have a much more calming presence most of the time (laughs) (laughs) so margie what as neuroscientists now i guess i can call you a spiritualist (laughs) usually a spiritualist church or um what would what would you like to shout to the world You know, I I think what I would do is I would first of all say, 
to both children and adults, be curious. To me, that's the one fundamental thing. And don't automatically accept things as true just because you were told they were true by your parents or your society or your teachers or your textbooks or the news, for example. And also look at the information that supports or doesn't support that point of view. Look carefully and then look at your own experience. It's that thing of like trying to like quiet my narrative background thinking about who I am and how everything relates to me and just get still and be present. And I think that means also spending some time each day just quieting your mind in one way or another. It could be just walking in nature. And then I think let the inspiration that comes from those moments actually guide you in your own understanding of the nature of consciousness and of reality, the nature of the world. And of course, stay open, never stop exploring and going deeper. I think to me, that is the key. Beautiful, well, well said. Well, Marjorie, thank you so much. And if people want to find you, how would they do that? They can go to my website, which is marjoriewolicott.com, and they just have to know how to spell the name. It's M-A-R-J-O-R-I-E-W-O-O-L-L-A-C-O-T-T.com. And there they'll find more information on my research, on the books that I've been a part of, and also on things like the scientific and medical um, network that I'm a part of, the AAPS Academy for the Advancement of Post-Material Sciences, and the Association for um, Near-Death Studies, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. So I think they could like learn with their curiosity about all of those things. And we'll have links to all those. I, I wish we had, we'll have a whole nother interview about all those different organizations. And as I mentioned to you, David Lorimar with the Scientific and Medical Network is, is coming on the show. So I'm really excited about that. Well, thank you. Thank you. And you have a wonderful day. And I'm sure we will be talking, talking again soon. Thank you so much, Marla. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.